you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We're continuing to go in our journey through this book of the life and reign of David. And as we continue in what has been a very gripping story that we started back in chapter 11, I want to remind you that this is not simply a good story. This is the very Word of God. The Holy Spirit has intended for you and I to have these very words before us. Not a summation of them, not a summary of them, but these very words before us. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 12, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich men had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I appointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, 
And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, When the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and it was a precious, in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. Thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would reach us through your word. For your word is truth, O Lord, and your word is life. Let us, as we study your word, know more of the grace that you have provided in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, (coughs) and that we might know our duty of repentance. Lord, we ask that you would reach us and change us and mold us more in the image of our Savior. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Last week, we saw the first half of the darkest story in David's life. We saw how dangerous sin is, with David caught in its trap, pursuing a path of selfishness and destruction. Temptation 
turned into sin, which led to more sin. First, all David could think of was fulfilling his desire. Then all he could think of was covering up his sin. Chapter 11 warns us not to take sin lightly. But what happens when we fall into sin? Chapter 12 gives us hope. It shows us that the grace of God is greater than sin. As deadly and dangerous as sin is, God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ is greater. So as we begin here to look at chapter 12, the first thing that I want us to see is the pursuit of grace. How the Lord God pursues us with His grace. There is an important change that happens here between chapter 11 and chapter 12, and we see it right from the very first words of the chapter. Chapter 11 is all about David, David's sin, and David's actions. Now, God is on the scene, and He is in control. So we see from verse 1 that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now this is an important word here, sent. It occurs over and over again throughout chapter 11, some 12 times. And seven times it is David who is doing the sending. He is sending Joab off to battle. He is sending for Bathsheba. He is sending for Uriah. He is sending the letter that is the death warrant of Uriah. Over and over again, David is in control, and it is a mess. But now, God is the one who's in control. He is the one who is sending. And without this, without this initiation of the Lord our God, this story would continue to be dark and hopeless. But God is breaking in. He is initiating with David. Now, we are familiar with the idea of God initiating. We understand from the Bible that salvation comes from the Lord. Paul reminds us in the book of Romans that while we were still enemies, God reconciled us by the death of His Son. And then, of course, we have that picture in the Gospel of John of Lazarus in the tomb. And Jesus comes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Initiating with Lazarus. We have the story in the book of Acts of Jesus meeting Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus as Saul is carrying death warrants and death threats against the church. But Jesus initiates with Saul. He meets him on the road to Damascus and Paul would never be the same again. But here we see something slightly different with God initiating. Something that I think we can all too often forget. And that is the truth that God initiates repentance in His children. Repentance is a gift of God. It comes from God. It's not something that we work up. We are not left on our own to repent. God initiates here. God does not leave us to ourselves after saving us. He never lets go. He is the one 
who initiates. And so here we see David who has sinned horribly. Worse yet, David is now comfortable in his sin. He thinks that he's succeeded in covering it up. He thinks that he's passed the challenges. He won't be found out. He could put this in the rearview mirror and go on ahead. But the Lord will not leave David alone. He pursues David with his grace. Imagine if the Lord abandoned you when you succeeded at your sin. What would be the result of that? Do you trust yourself to dig yourself out of your sin? To dig yourself out of the hole that you have gotten yourself into? Or do you want the gracious, loving God to bring you back to Himself? Now, how God pursues David with His grace is also interesting. He sends Nathan the prophet, a friend of David. You may remember that Nathan was the one who came to David to tell him about God's everlasting covenant and everlasting throne. A prophet is someone who speaks from God to man. In a sense, a prophet is the opposite of one who is a priest. A priest is someone who speaks from man to God. But the prophet brings the word of God to man. Now Nathan is also a very smart man. He doesn't charge in like a bull in a china shop. He doesn't walk in and see David and say, you know David, you are a horrible, miserable, rotten adulterer and murderer. What are you going to do about that? No. Why? Well, because if Nathan started by telling David that he was a horrible adulterer and murderer, David's defenses would immediately come up. Perhaps you have even had this experience where someone comes to tell you about your sin, to confront you with your sin in love, and if they begin to speak to you about your sin, immediately you start bringing up your defenses, making up excuses, Maybe even directing the conversation back on the other person and their sin. Well, I might have done that, but do you know what you do? And so Nathan doesn't want David's defenses to come up. It's almost as if Nathan has read Paul's letter to the Galatians, where Paul says that if you are to confront someone in sin, do so in a spirit of gentleness. That's what Nathan is doing here. Do you see that even in the means that God uses of His grace, that God is kind and gracious. Well, Nathan comes with a story. We're not told whether David thought this was an actual judicial case or a principle. Some call it a parable. It could be a hypothetical. It could also be um, that because David is the chief judge in the land, that Nathan is bringing to him a hard case from a city or a town somewhere out in Israel. He's hiding the names of the men and of the town so as not to bias David. He doesn't want David to know which tribe they're from. But it may be that David thinks it's a real case, but in any event, the story grips David's attention. We can almost imagine, as David is listening to Nathan, how he leans in to hear, perhaps even puts 
his chin on his hands. He wants to hear the story. He wants to know more about it. He wants to make a decision about what's involved. And Nathan says, you see, there were these two men. One was a rich man. We don't know much about the rich man except that he's rich and that he has more herds and flocks than you could imagine. He doesn't need anything. The second man is a poor man. We know a little bit more about the poor man. We know that he didn't have much, that he only had one little ewe lamb. Now, we also know that the poor man had a family because we picture this scene around the dinner table with the man and his wife and his children and how the ewe lamb comes up and participates in this. And perhaps as you read this story, you think it's a little bit odd. Those of you who know me and my family know me especially that you do not give animals people food. I said that many a time about dogs. Dogs eat dog food, not people food. But actually here what we see is not just the poor man giving this little ewe lamb people food. He feeds it out of his hand, out of his own morsel. What that means is when you tear off a hunk of the bread, you take a bite, you hand it to the lamb, the lamb takes a bite, you put it back in your mouth. Not just that. He lets the lamb drink out of his own cup. How many of you would let a dog or a cat drink out of your cup? The idea here is that this is really not even so much a lamb as a member of the family. Nathan is really playing this story up. The story was designed to affect David. It's not a coincidence that Nathan talks about a lamb because, of course, David was a shepherd. He had rescued sheep and lambs out of the hands of lions and bears. He had an affinity for these animals. He loved them. And David also saw himself as a defender of the weak, of the helpless. And that's the poor man described to a T. David also was a man who wanted to uphold justice. We've seen this over and over again, even in this book of 2 Samuel, how he wants to uphold justice against murderers and criminals. The parallels are obvious to us. The one who had many takes the loved one of the one who only had one. Now David reacts just as Nathan wants. He's not dispassionate. He doesn't rattle off some legal theory. He doesn't recognize a statute in Israel. No, David explodes in verse 5. He's visibly angry. The text doesn't exactly tell us, but I think he raises his voice and shouts. Because David sees the injustice of all of this. The text tells us (coughs) that he is angry against the rich man. Not just angry in the abstract. He doesn't just think this is a bad thing to have happened. No, he's angry at the rich man. One commentator's put it this way. With every word of Nathan's sermon, David becomes more and more religious. He becomes more and more aware of the standard of God. And so David utters out an oath, as the Lord lives. There's no stronger oath he could take. David wants justice done. This man will restore fourfold what he has taken. David wants the law upheld. What the law had prescribed was, if someone had stolen an ox 
or stolen a sheep, they didn't just have to give back one for one. They had to restore fourfold. You may remember the famous story of Zacchaeus in the tree. Zacchaeus the tax collector. And when Jesus came to him, when Jesus brought the gospel to him, when Jesus was the bringer of the gospel message that converted Zacchaeus, what did Zacchaeus say? If I've defrauded anyone, I'll restore fourfold. So David wants the law upheld. But more than that, David sees the heart problem with the rich man. Because of the cruelty of this man, David pronounces the man worthy of death. The Hebrew is very vivid. He calls him a son of death. He's worthy of death. Now, Nathan has David committed. David's sold out here. He's taken the time to get David to commit to the principle involved. There's no escape for David. And then comes the clinching statement. You are the man. Do you see how God has pursued David? How David cannot escape? He's condemned himself. Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew Nathan had a sword. God not only initiates the pursuit of grace, His wisdom ensures the catch. When God wants you to repent, He will bring it about. He will not give you rest. He will hit you when and where you least expect it. You know, the hound of heaven uses more than speed to get you. He uses craft also. Well, the second thing that we see is Nathan's response showing us our need for grace. Our need for grace because sin is so evil. Because we are tempted to think that our sins are not so bad. That we can work around them. We find ourselves often in the position of David. Other sins seem stark and black and obviously wrong. But of course ours, they're really no big deal. We can put them behind us. We can let them sit in the background. But God knows better than we do. He knows how black sin is. He knows that we need grace. And so Nathan is about to paint the backdrop of David's sin. He does this so that David can see the glory of God's grace set against the blackness of David's sin. First, he reminds David of all the grace that he's already received. It's not as if David hasn't already been blessed over and over again by God. This sets David's sin in a context. All the Lord had already done for David. The Lord had given David his kingdom. He'd given him all that was Saul's. He had delivered him from death and from danger. We see this in verse 7 and verse 8. And... Then there's this marvelous statement at the end of verse 8 where he, the Lord says to David, and if that would have been too little, I would have given you as much over again. As if to say, do you see all I have blessed you with? How you weren't wanting for anything, David. Now what should David have heard from this? David should have responded to God's deliverance 
not with murder. You see, David had not shown the same grace to others that he had received. And he had no need to take from Uriah. God had already heaped blessing upon blessing on him. And worse yet, God had given him and would have given him more than he had asked for. But David didn't. He just took according to his desires. Now secondly, Nathan reminds David of the destruction of lives that David has left in his wake. The Hebrew here is very emphatic. You see, David has not just put down, denigrated all that God has given to him. No, he destroyed others in order to get what he wanted. And so the Hebrew here does a technique of this language, which is to make emphatic the direct objects. And it does it by putting it at the front of the sentence before the verbs. We can't do that in English, but you can in Hebrew. And so a literal translation would read something like this in verse 9. Uriah the Hittite you have struck down. And his wife you have taken to be your own. And him you have killed with the sword of the Ammonites. The Lord and Nathan want David to know the disaster that David has brought about. The devastation to real people, real families, that his sin has caused. There is no such thing as victimless sin. Sin carries with it pain, sorrow, death. When we sin, we hurt others around us. We need to be reminded of that. Then Nathan tells David about the worst part of his sin, namely that David has despised God. This is the worst. Because when David thought lightly of all God's blessings, he was despising God who's the giver of those blessings. And David had despised God's word because of his actions. He treated God's word about adultery and about murder as if it didn't matter at all as if it was unimportant, as if it was a portion of God's word that could be ignored. And in truth, that's what sin is. It is a rejection of God's word and his truth. And when we reject God's word, we are really despising the giver of that word, God himself. And so the Lord declares this in verse 10. He tells David, you have despised me, David. (coughs) You have to think about sin in that way. Not just in the abstract. Or not just about principles. Although that is true. No, when you sin, you are despising God. There's no avoiding that. And when you see that, you will see how black sin is and how much you need the grace of God to be free from it. All of this leads to a pronouncement of judgment. Now, we might think here in a story about grace, there would be no judgment. Isn't that what grace means? That everything is forgiven? That all will be okay? That everything will be perfect once again? But the truth is, That even with forgiveness, there are consequences. 
for us to understand how much we need grace, we need to see a glimpse of what we deserve. After all, if David can be outraged at the rich man, what does God think of David? David has destroyed lives and despised God, and he has been satisfied with the results. So God will give him a glimpse of what he deserves in verses 10 through 12. Now notice a few things here. First, the judgment fits the crime. Because David has killed, the sword will never depart from his family. Because David has broken a family, his family will experience brokenness. But notice also that God will not do this in secret. God will do this openly. Because God doesn't need to hide. His judgment and His justice shine in the light of day. Now remember that this judgment comes in a very specific context. The context is found in verse 13, where Nathan says to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now what does that mean? That means that David will not get what he deserves. According to the law, David should be put to death. Because adultery was a capital offense. We see that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. We see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. But it's not just adultery that's a capital offense. Murder is a capital offense. We see that in Exodus chapter 21, verse 12. But David is spared. Why? Well, it could only be because of God's grace. David didn't deserve such mercy. But the consequences from his sin remain. Have you ever gone to a pond and taken a good-sized stone and thrown it into the pond? What happens when you do that? The stone goes, stone goes in kerplunk. But what follows? There are ripples that go out throughout the whole pond, spreading wider and wider and wider. And you can go to the pond and reach down in and pull the stone back out of the pond. But you can't stop the ripples, can you? I think that's a picture of dealing with sin. That we can repent of our sin. We can be forgiven of our sin. But far too often the consequences remain. Now we can see grace as something that will make everything perfect in spite of our sins. But grace teaches us that sin is horrible. It's costly. And it has consequences. The Lord can forgive us, but often we need to live with the consequences of what we have done. And that should teach us to fear and avoid sin. There came a letter into our office this week. Pastor Wegener showed it to me. It's of a man who has been converted to Christ and who has a ministry teaching the Bible. And he wants to spread the gospel and see others converted. And he wants help in doing this. There's just one small problem. He's in a prison. And he'll never get out. Because he's also a murderer. Do we praise the Lord that the Lord met him in prison? And brought in the gospel? 
and that he's freed from his sin, and that he will enjoy blessedness of eternity with the Lord, yes, but he is not ever getting out of prison. Sin has consequences. The third thing I want us to see, because we've seen God pursue David with his grace, we've seen God make clear the need for his grace, is to see that our story ends with the success of grace. This is the great hope presented to us in all of this mess. To be honest, chapter 11 is black. And as we watch Nathan springing the trap upon David's conscience, it's almost as if we watch with our hands covering our eyes, looking through our fingers, because we're, we're uncomfortable, we don't know what's going to happen. And then we cringe when we hear Nathan shout, You are the man! And that's because we're thinking about all of our secret sins. All of those that could be exposed to the light of day. And then we hear this fearful list of God's judgment on David for his sin. Why are we shown all of this? The purpose is to show us that God's grace brings repentance. The most glorious part of these two chapters is in David's simple statement in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. In this one simple, brief statement, David acknowledges his guilt. Now we might think at first glance that this is insufficient. Surely David can put on a better show than this. In Hebrew, it's only two words. David says two words, and Nathan pronounces forgiveness upon him. You are forgiven. The Lord has put away your sin, Nathan says. Shouldn't David have to beg at least a bit more? Or plead his earnestness to Nathan? Or be left at least for a period of time to twist in the wind? Just to taste some misery because of what he's done. But we should see how this statement is sufficient. Its simplicity makes it sincere. There's no attempt to excuse. There's no attempt to give a limitation to his sin or a pretext to his sin. Well, if only Bathsheba wouldn't have been out that time of day. Well, if only Uriah would have taken my suggestion. Let me tell you all of the ways that I could have escaped this. All of the things that were a burden on me. No, David doesn't say any of this. He acknowledges his guilt openly, totally, and before God. It's very similar to the statement from Luke 18 that we sang about earlier today. How the publican says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't say, Lord forgive me because I've had a really hard life. You know how hard it is to be a tax collector in Israel. Everybody hates you. Nobody wants to be around you. And I was born into this family. And I've tried to work hard. Yes, maybe I've shaved the truth a little bit. But, no, there's none of that. It's simple. It's direct. It's sincere. That's what repentance is. A complete giving oneself over to the word of God as it accuses us. Is this how you practice repentance? Or do you attempt to build up an excuse? I'm sorry, but... Or maybe you say, if I have offended you, 
and I really shouldn't have, but okay, if I have, then, no. Repentance is totally and completely agreeing with God about our sin. Now, I want you also to see here the wonder of grace, that David receives forgiveness where he deserved death. The law's demands were washed away. Are you in awe of God's grace? You see, God's grace is not a transaction. It's not as if we put in a confession and then we take out an assurance of pardon. Each week in worship, as we confess our sins and as we hear the assurance of pardon, does that have a transactional nature to you? Do you think, well, that's what God has to do? Or are you in wonder that God actually forgives sins? Ralph Davis has a marvelous quote about this. He says that we should have goosebumps on our souls when we hear words of forgiveness like this. Well, the rest of the chapter is long, and we do not have time to delve into everything, especially since we don't have clear answers that all of us would like. There are questions like, why did David's child need to die? We might say, perhaps this is so, we can see that grace is costly, that David is forgiven, but a son has to die. Does this point us to the Son's death, the Lord Jesus Christ's death? Perhaps, but not definitively. And I think it's significant that David's son dies on the seventh day, not the eighth day, lest we would put too much stock in the sacrament, the sacrament of circumcision. David's son actually dies before that. And what do we make of David's statement in verse 23? where David says that I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Does this teach us that every baby that dies goes to heaven? I don't think we can take that from this text, because we can't take an absolute doctrine from a short statement in a narrative that has something else as its main subject. At the same time, David's statement is consistent with the Bible's view that God has a special covenant love for his people, and their covenant children. And David's statement is perfectly consistent with the idea of mercy that God has in his covenant. But I think we're actually meant to focus on something else at the end of this chapter. It's this odd behavior of David. He fasts and he pleads when the child is ill, and then he arises and eats after the death. Even David's servants think this is odd. They say to themselves, he was a big mess when the child was ill. What's he going to do now that we have to tell him that the child has died? We think he might even kill himself. What's going on here? I think grace has changed the way David sees everything. It's not just the means that God brings for forgiveness. He changes David. David has heard the judgment of God, that the child will die, but yet he still, in verse 16, pleads with God. He sought God on behalf of the child. Why? Well, we see why in verse 22. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. 
David thinks that the Lord's judgment may not be his last word. After all, he is a God of grace. David may have thought back to Moses in Exodus 32 when God said to Moses, I'm done with this people. I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to start over again with you, Moses. And Moses, when he heard this judgment, took it as an invitation to seek God's grace. And he found it. For David, grace is not just something God does. It's who God is. It's in his nature. Do you have that kind of view of God? That the Lord is a God of grace? You know, there are two ways that you can think about your sin. You can say, I've messed up. What will I do if my father finds out? You had that experience, young people? The ding in the car, the blown flat tire, you're out past your curfew. What will I do if my parents find out? Far better to say, I've messed up. I have to go to my father. He is the one who can help me, who can solve this problem. Who can free me? When you view God as the gracious one, you will be spurred on to repent and seek Him when you sin. Well, the Bible does not shy away from hard things. We've seen some of the worst sins out of one of the heroes of the Bible. When we see that, we wonder what hope we can have. Because after all, we're not David. We're not defeating Goliath. We're not dancing before the ark. We're not sitting as a king on the throne. But what we see here today is that we don't have to be. There is only one perfect person. And it's not David. And it's not me. And it's not you. It's Jesus. And Jesus Christ came and died the death that we deserve so that we could know the grace of God. God is pursuing you with His grace today. He will not let you go. He is pursuing you even now through His Word here through 2 Samuel 12. Do you see your need for grace? Does it drive you to repent of your sins, to run from your sin and run to God. We have a God who specializes in grace. It is His forte. Come to Him now. Let's pray.